As we continue our worship now by coming to the Word of the Lord to receive His wisdom, uh, we come once again to this study that we started back at the beginning of Advent that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And if you were with us last week, then you know that last week we looked at the story of the end of the world of Noah. And from now on, I'm going to refer to that world of Noah as the world it was, and it's very simple math on this because it no longer is, for it ended in sudden unexpected, at least from the perspective of everybody outside of the family of Noah, and, and listen for the apocalyptic language, it's really intense, cataclysmic judgment. So if you're new and you're just joining us, you're pretty excited now, aren't you? I mean, that's a pretty intense way to start a message, and I feel that, and I'm kind of an intense person to begin with, so if you're like laid back, you're going, man, you know, put down the coffee, but it's significant, Because unless we're going to skip stuff like this in the Bible, then we have to deal seriously with stuff like this in the Bible. Do we not? We have to talk about it. We have to reason with one another about it, and we need to learn from it. So last week, we looked at the story of the end of the world it was, and we saw together that God must, in the end, bring judgment. He must. Now, why must he do that? And not, by the way, just to the world of Noah, but he must in the end bring judgment to our world too. Now it's doubly amped. Why is that? Because just like the world of Noah, did you catch that? Okay, our world too is a world that is full of corruption. It is a world that is full of greed. It is a world that is full of oppression and injustice and suffering and sorrow and sicknesses of all different kinds. It's full of death and, well, you get the point. And so then how could God be holy? How could God be righteous? How could God be just and not in the end bring an end to all of that? And as we said last week, isn't that really kind of what we all want? We want him to bring an end from all of that. We kind of remember, I think, in some deep part of our soul, the garden that our first parents lived in. A place with no police departments, a place with no armies, a place with no hospitals, because there was no sickness, there was no strife, there was nothing. It's like we know deep down in our hearts and souls that we were made for something better than this, and for as good as it can be during little stretches of time in this life, the reality is sickness, death, strife, conflict, and we are all of us afflicted by it, and then we turn on the news and we look at our phones and we're all of us overwhelmed by it, because now we live in a day and age, glory to God, where we get to see all of the happenings of the world at the same time. So then, how could God be perfectly holy? How could God be perfectly righteous? How could God be perfectly just? How could God be God? That's the question. And not, in the end, bring all of that to an end. And secondly, not in the end, hold every evildoer accountable for every evil deed and even the little ones. Why the little ones? Because he's perfectly just. He cannot, in his justice, turn a blind eye to anything. So we talked very soberly last week about the fact that, okay, God must, in the end, bring judgment, and not just to the world of Noah, but to our world too. And then we very gladly also talked about the fact that God also delivers from judgment. And how does he do that? How did he do that in the days of Noah? He did that through this great big boat that he commanded Noah to build called the ark 
which safely transported Noah and his families and a remnant of the animals above the waters of the flood of judgment, as you'll recall. And where did it safely transport them to? To a brand new world. That's what we'll see today. But how does he do it now? He does it through Christ, who is pictured in that ark. God delivers from judgment. He gives eternal life. He brings to a brand new world, a holy new world, a world in which he promises, hey, you know what? No more police departments, no more armies, no more hospitals, none of that stuff, because there will be no corruption. There will be no oppression. There will be no injustice. There will be no evil, no wickedness, no selfishness, no sin, not in us and not in anyone else in that new world. And he does that through Jesus who looked upon us and in mercy became one of us and then lived for us the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just life that God requires of us because he can't overlook anything, not even the little stuff. And then he willingly offered his infinitely valuable, infinitely perfect and righteous life to Almighty God on the cross, where on the cross in his body, mind, heart, and soul, he received in the place of all those who bring to him their sin and their selves, the flood, if you will, of the judgment of Almighty God, so that at the end of this world, when God comes to judge, through faith in him, we're delivered. Judgment's been meted out for us. That's paid. That's done. And what are we delivered to? We're delivered to a brand new world. So last week, we looked at the end of the world that was, and today we're going to look at the beginning of the world that is. That is to say, of the world that we live in today, and here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that it begins exactly in the same way as the world that was. And we're going to see that it ends in exactly the same way as the world that was. And next week, we're going to come together and see that in between the beginning and end, it follows the same pattern, the same trajectory, the same path. It's a do-over of the world that was, which means, by the way, that it inspires the same question as the world that was. And what is that question? Because we saw it last week. Noah, the faithful man and the only faithful man left, had a question to answer. And not just with his lips, but with his life. And what was the question? It was, how do I live today in a world that I know today will end in judgment? For those who don't get on the ark, or in our case, for those who don't believe in Christ, who is the ultimate ark, but will end in deliverance and will end in eternal life and will end in a brand new world, the one that we know deep down in our hearts that we were all of us made for and the one that we all long for, for those who do get on the ark or who believe in Jesus. It's the same question, and I'm going to give you the same answer that I gave you last week, but I'm going to flesh it out a little bit more. The answer is we live like Noah. He is our model of faith. He is our model of righteousness. He is our hero. He's the guy that we're looking to and going, good grief, he got it right. But why did he live the way he lived? Because he valued, he trusted, and he loved God more than anything or anyone else. And then here's what he did. He lived accordingly. That's what we're called to do, to love, to trust, to value our God more than anything or anyone else. And then in light of the exigencies that we too face, which is the same situation that he faced, we live accordingly. But first... Let me show you the trajectory, the pattern. Let me prove to you that the world that is, the one that we live in, is patterned precisely after 
the world that was. How did the world that was begin? Do you remember? Because we saw it several weeks ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then we got a picture of the earth, and what did it look like? It was dark, it was dead, it was formless, it was empty, and it was completely covered with water. Sound familiar? And then what did God do? Well, we read first that the Ruach of God, hang with me on this, it actually matters. It's a word that can be translated spirit, which it is in Genesis 1. It's a word that can be translated wind, which it is in Genesis 8. But the Ruach of God was hovering above the dark, dead, formless, chaotic, watery world. And then in the space of six days, God introduces light into the darkness and divides the darkness from the light. He separates the waters below from the waters above. He creates the clouds and the skies, if you will. He brings forth the dry land from the water, and then he vegetates the dry land. Why? Because he's preparing it to be filled. Filled with what? Filled with animals, filled with man, male and female, with humanity. He fills the skies with birds and the seas with all kinds of sea creatures, and then he fills the land that has been vegetated and is now ready with animals and with man, male and female, and on the seventh day he rests. Okay, well, as we pick up our story today, where are we? We're in that world that's been brought to an end and utterly decreated through the flood. In other words, God, through the flood of Noah, returned the world to that original state. We open the pages and we find a world that is once again dark and dead and formless and totally empty of life with the exception of Noah and the remnant on the ark and completely covered in water. And then we read in Genesis 8 verse 1 that God made, and here's the word, a ruach, translated wind, the Ruach of God blew over the earth and the water subsided. What did that look like? It looked like the clouds parting. It looked like the sun all of a sudden shining. It looked like the rain stopping. So the waters above are separated once again from the waters below. And then as the waters dissipated, what began to happen? The dry land began to emerge and the ark came to a rest on a high place, on a mountain. And then what did Noah do? Because if you did your personal worship, you know the pattern. Noah knew the pattern, so immediately Noah now begins to investigate if vegetation has begun to come forth from the earth again, because he wants to get off the ark badly. Wouldn't you? So he starts sending out birds. He sends out the raven, which comes back empty, nothing in its beak to indicate vegetation has yet sprung forth from the earth. He sends out the dove comes back empty, sends out the dove again that comes back now with a freshly plucked olive leaf from a tree in its beak. And he realizes, hey, you know what? Vegetation has in fact come forth. He sends forth the dove again and it doesn't come back. It finds a new home. Now he knows, now he knows that the earth is ready to be filled, but to be filled by who? To be filled by the animals, obviously, but to be filled by Noah and his family, who is obviously the new Adam, Adam and his wife populated the original world. Noah and his wife populated this world that is too. And just like in that world that was, God brought all of the animals two by two to Adam, if you'll recall, so that Adam could name them. So also did God bring all of the animals two by two to Noah so that Noah could save them. 
And in addition to that, just like God blessed Adam and commanded him in Genesis 1.28, now listen to the language and remember it, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So also did God bless Noah, the new Adam, and commanded him in Genesis 9 verse 1, here it is, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now he speaks of his dominion. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps upon the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. And then just like God took Adam and he placed him in a fruitful garden and what happened in the fruitful garden, he ate, he fell, he sinned. And his eyes were opened after he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did he immediately recognize? He was naked and ashamed. That's the language. What happens with Noah in the new world? He plants a fruitful garden, he grows a vineyard, and he makes wine, and he gets hammered, and he exposes himself physically. He's naked, and his eyes are awakened, not just to his own shamefulness, but to the shameful things that have been done to him. And just like the fall of Adam brought a curse upon the children of Adam and really divided them, as you'll recall, into godly and ungodly. It's exactly what happens with Noah. It brings a curse upon his children and divides them into godly and ungodly. My goodness, I mean, I could keep going, but it seems to me, at least at this point, that it's pretty obvious that the world that we're all living in right now is patterned precisely after the world that was. It begins the same way, and I'm telling you, it ends the same way, and you could maybe argue a little bit with that and say, hey, man, all you've done is proven that the beginning is the same. Why do you keep saying the ending is the same? Well, for two reasons. Number one, it is of the same character and nature, and so is God, and therefore it calls forth necessarily the same response in the end. And number two, Jesus clears it all up in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36, where he talks about his day of return. And just as a small parenthetical, he's clearly saying here that the day of his return is the day of the flood, I'll put that in quotes, of the judgment of God. It's the judgment day, and it's also the day of deliverance. Just depends on whether or not you're on the ark who is Jesus. And I point that out because he doesn't say, and when I return, I'm going to come back and then I'm going to take my people and we're going to go away for seven years. And I'm not making fun of this. I'm pointing it out. Then I'm going to come back again, but I'm still not going to bring judgment, even though this is now the second time I've come. But instead, I'm going to establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years and I'm going to reign in Jerusalem. And then after the thousand years, I'm going to bring... He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge. And the world that is that we live in will then give way for those upon the ark who is Christ by faith to a world of no corruption, one that will never need to be cleansed. Jesus says this, he says, but concerning that day and hour, the day and hour of my return, no one knows. The disciples have asked him, when's that going to happen? He's like, you know what? Nobody knows the answer to that one. Not even the angels nor the son, but the father only knows when that's going to occur. But let me describe the time for you. Let me give you its character. He says, for as were the days of, and here he is, here's our hero. This is the guy we're tying it all into, Noah. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the sudden, unexpected, and cataclysmic, sorry for the apocalyptic language, but that's what it is. It's what it was, flood of God's judgment. They, meaning all of those people who were alive with Noah in that world that was, were doing what? They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and 
going about all of their ordinary business as if nothing was coming, making fun of Noah because he was the village idiot. He was a crazy man, crazy man. They were just going about life as if nothing was going to come in the form of judgment, as if if it would never end until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware of God's impending judgment until it came. Until the flood came and swept them all away. Now what does Jesus say? So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Look, the world that is, that we live in now, is patterned precisely after the world that was. It begins the same way, it ends the same way, and as we'll see next week, it has the same trajectory. It takes the same path. And so then, practically speaking, it inspires the same question, which is how should we now live then in this world? We should live like Noah. We should live like people who love and trust and value God more than anything and more than anyone else. And that's what we saw in Noah, and we saw it last week in the world that was. My goodness, guys, Noah so fervently believed this same message that we're called to believe, which is that the world that we live in is actually going to end in judgment, but in his case, deliverance would come by virtue of this enormous wooden boat called the Ark that in the plains of Mesopotamia, without probably so much as a lake being around, he and his three boys who didn't abandon him, his wife didn't abandon him, their wives didn't abandon him, that itself is a miracle if you consider this. These guys built a ship... In the middle of nowhere, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, as I said last week, with three different levels within it and all kinds of compartments and rooms. You ready? For the animals that crazy Noah claimed would come to him. It's bizarre. He was on every news channel in the world. He was universally regarded as the village idiot. He was the end of every joke until the flood came, and then he was a genius. But at that point, his genius was of no use to anybody. But I want to point out, it is of great use to those of us who find ourselves in exactly the same position. It's of great use to us. And the point is, we need to learn to live like him, which is to say like people who love and trust and value God more than anything and more than anyone else who really believe this message and therefore who do crazy looking, at least from the perspective of everyone who does not share our faith, things with our time and with our energy and with our abilities and with our money and with everything that God has given with our kids. You let your kids do what? Your children are going to do what? You're sending them where? We need to live like crazy people in the eyes of people who don't understand our faith. If the people in this visible world are ever going to believe in our invisible God and get on the invisible ark, if you will, who is Jesus Christ, they need to see us doing things with the visible things in this world that manifests the fact that we do, in fact, love and trust and value our invisible God more than the things that they worship. We have to look hard in the mirror and ask ourselves, do I worship the same thing that everybody else who does not share my faith worship, or do I actually worship the Lord, believe this message? And if so, then how does that show up in my life in practical ways? Because if it doesn't, you know, that's a problem. But it showed up in Noah's life, and it showed up not just in the world that was, 
but it showed up also in this world that is. In other words, here's what did not happen with Noah. He didn't like get on the ark with his family and the animals and all that, safely pass through the waters of judgment, make it to the new world, you know. The ark comes to a rest and he kicks the door open and goes, oh, praise Jesus, now I can finally live for myself because I've been saved from the judgment of God. No, no, no. He just kept right on loving and trusting and valuing God more than anything and anyone else. And why would he not? Like, what else is a greater object of worship than God. He offers himself to us and says, listen, here's the thing. I am the greatest being in all the universe. That's not bragging. That's just telling you the truth. I've made you to be fulfilled and satisfied and find life and purpose and meaning and all of this stuff in me and my purposes for you are for forever, incidentally. Worship and serve me and it will be the most satisfying, gratifying thing that you can possibly do. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Noah gets that. So he's delivered. He just keeps right on living for God. And you see this, I think, most poignantly in the first two things that he does after he lands in the new world. And I want you to imagine this because you got to enter into it to get it. You got to feel it. All right. So here's the deal. After floating around in this boat with his wife, his three sons, their wives, and a massive huge, enormous zoo for six and a half months. Can you imagine the smell of that place? It's not described as having windows. It's dark. It stinks. Good grief. It's a floating toilet. Six and a half months. I would freak out just from the noise. Six and a half months floating in this thing. It finally, the waters recede and he, it lands on the top of one of these mountains. And then do you know what Noah did? And you're like, no, 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 sorry. I, I didn't do my personal worship. I'm like new to the whole thing. I got the bullet in those, or the, the journal, so I'll do it now. But I would imagine what Noah did is he did what I do after 18 hours in the car with my family. He kicked the door open. He fell on his knees. He kissed the earth. He wept copious tears. He said to his family, listen, I love you. I love you. I'd die for you. I just don't want to see you until breakfast. Just go somewhere else. Scatter. That's what he did. That's not what he did. Here's what Noah did. He just waited. You're like, well... (laughs) Why in the heck did he do that? That's crazy. Well, because the ark had one door, God had supernaturally shut the one door to the ark. Presumably then, God would have to open that which he had supernaturally closed, or at the very least, it was the place of God to open it. God would decide when Noah and the family, all the animals, would leave this trap that they were in at this point called the ark. So Noah waited. Now, he did do everything that he could to investigate the situation from aboard the ark because, again, he saw the pattern. And so he starts looking for vegetation, and he starts looking for vegetation because he knows the pattern. Vegetated earth then gets filled, and he's assuming, therefore, that when the vegetation is found, God's going to come and let him off the ark. (laughs) doesn't happen that way. He sends out the raven, the raven comes back empty, he waits. He sends out the dove, the dove comes back empty, he waits. By the way, he waited a month and a half before he even sent out the raven. Now we're like at the eight-month mark. 
He sends out the dove a third time. It comes back with the leaf in its beak. And Noah is jacked because the world now is vegetated. It's ready to be filled. Surely God's going to open the door and he doesn't. That's a little disappointing. Sends out the dove again. The dove doesn't come back at all. Now he knows it's found another home. The world is ready. The door's not opened. Guys, six months after the ark came to a rest on the top of the mountain, six months, 12 and a half months into the whole ark experience at this point, Noah opens up some kind of a thing, I guess, on the roof or on the deck or whatever, some, something in the ceiling, and he goes out to look for himself. And he sees that the whole world is dry, like everything that he can see is dry, it's vegetated, it's ready to be filled. He's known that already for some time. And God still does not come to open the door. Another month passes, and finally, after 13 and a half months on the ark, God opens the door and lets them all out. And you say, well, then that's when he comes rolling out of the door falls to his knees, weeps copious tears, kisses the ground, tells everybody to go find some alone time and I'll see you at breakfast. No, it's not what he does. You're like, then that's when he gives God a piece of his mind because that's ridiculous. Lord, what in the heck happened here? Please help me to understand this because I don't get it. I've been trapped in this, I'm just going to say a toilet for Thirteen and a half months, like I knew several months ago, due to my investigations, that you could have let us off. Good grief, I sent the bird, he came back with the leaf, and then I sent him, he never came back. He found another home, that's what I've been wanting to do for forever. Do you know what it's like in this place? Do you understand the smell here? Can you imagine the bugs, God? What, are you on vacation? I don't understand. What in the world went wrong here? I mean, thanks for letting us off and everything, but good grief. It's not what he does. And it's curious to me that the Lord offers no explanation at all. He clearly sets it up in such a way that Noah understands it's time to get off, or at least he's capable of getting off. And he clearly lets him wait anyway, and then he never comes to him and says, hey, bud, listen, I know you're a little upset about this, and I appreciate your patience, and probably you're a little ticked off at me, so let me kind of explain to you what happened here. Here's my reasoning. Here's what was going on. Here's why I made you. He doesn't do any of those things, and he doesn't do that for me either, incidentally, and he doesn't do that for you. So what does Noah do? He's our model. He's our guy. He gets off the ark. And as we'll see in a second in more detail, he builds an altar and he worships the Lord with his family. I think the people will get on the ark of God who is Jesus, not only when they see us worshiping different gods than they do and valuing the invisible God and loving the invisible God and serving the invisible God and trusting the invisible God more than the little gods of this world. That's part of it. But I think they'll get on the ark of God who is Jesus and really begin to say, my goodness, maybe there's something to this invisible God. When they see that we love and trust and value that God more than anything and anyone else, even when our lives make absolutely no sense and it looks like our God has trapped us in some stinky hole, 
And there's no good explanation for it. We don't have an explanation for it. Nobody else has an explanation for it. And pretty much everybody universally agrees that, good grief, you should have been let out of this trap months ago. What in the world went wrong? When they see how we wait in faith, when they see how we suffer. Noah's family watched him wait, and they watched him suffer patiently. My goodness. And they never forgot it. But I'll add to that. So did the whole host of heaven. The forgotten audience. At least forgotten by us. They'll never forget it either. Almost a year ago now, our youth staff held a luncheon up in the attic, which is our youth facility, for Bill and Gail Kelly, Uh, who are longtime members of our church here, just beloved, wonderful, amazing, incredible, godly people. And the reason we did that for them is is because they were the driving force, really, behind the attic. We had a different plan. We had raised money for a different plan, which was a little awkward, I'm not going to lie. But Bill came with the better plan. And because it was the better plan, it was the more cost-effective plan, it was was just the right plan. We said, you know what, Bill? You got it. We're going to change our plan We're going to do that. And he drove that dude through without really terribly offending anyone, which was in and of itself pretty miraculous, if you think about it. And so we hosted a luncheon for them, or our youth staff did, and they gave them a nice little like picture book full of pictures of all the different ways that the attic has been used now over the course of the last 10 or so years, and notes from students and people who have used the attic and how they've been blessed by it. And we had that lunch in their honor and gave them that book. And The reason we did that is because they have not been around much in the last 10 years. And the reason for that is because Bill um, has been stricken with Parkinson's disease and it has robbed him of most of his capacities. If you know Bill, and a lot of you do, you know that Bill, prior to Parkinson's, was seriously one of the most capable, competent, powerful people that you could have ever thought to meet. Brilliant in business, brilliant with people, full of personality, life of the party. And here's the number one thing that Bill delighted in doing. Seriously, the number one thing, and everybody who knows him would agree, is he wanted to tell you about Jesus. He is the single greatest evangelist personally that I've ever met. Unbelievable. This guy had a car dealership that existed not just to sell cars, but for the primary purpose of bringing people in who wanted to buy a car so that Bill could then tell them about Jesus, which could not have been good for business. I'm not going to lie. But if you were going to sit in Bill's office, you were going to hear about his Savior. Whether you bought a car or not, it wasn't about selling cars. Bill proved with his time, he proved with his treasure again and again that that's not what life was about for him. It was all about Jesus. And there's a lot of people in this church who are here in this church because Bill led them to Christ. It's a fact. So how frustrating is it to be robbed of the capacity to even have a normal conversation? How difficult. And it's not just affected him and pulled him seemingly out of the game, but it's affected his wife, who is one of the most godly people I've ever met. She is unbelievably strong. They have faced many challenges, including this. This is one of them, and it's one of the larger, but, but it's unbelievable that lady's walk with the Lord. So you look at that and go, good grief, what's that all about? I mean, why have you trapped me in this body? 
when you know that my greatest delight is to tell people about you. So we had the lunch, and we gave them the book, and they went home afterwards, and I went back to my office, and I'm thinking about that, you know? So I sent Gail this email, and I'm going to read it to you. It's short. I said, hey, Gail, it was great to see you guys at the lunch today. I really hope that you enjoy the little book that these guys put together for you. It's a very small slice of the very big difference that you guys have made and continue to make for its an enduring work in the lives of so very many people. However, I had a thought that I really didn't get a chance to share, but that I hope will be encouraging to you both. If the book of Job makes anything clear, it is that there are really two audiences for each of our lives. There's the visible audience of friends and family and coworkers and so forth, and then there's the invisible audience before whom our lives play out as well. Moreover, that book of Job makes it clear that our lives often play out in ways that make no sense to us or to anyone else here in this visible world. But that make perfect sense in light of the audience and happenings of heaven. So then even though you guys must feel very alone at times and as though this disease has really taken you both out of the game, so to speak, I don't believe that's true. Your lives are just playing out before a different and far more significant audience. And I think that in the end, what you'll discover is that your most productive, your most God-glorifying years will have been the ones that you labeled the least productive. You guys are heroic in both heaven and earth, and very precious to both as well. And I hope today at this lunch, well, that this was a little reminder of that. Love you both, Tom. God is glorified by the way that we wait. He is glorified by the way that we suffer. The world watches how we suffer. Our kids watch how we suffer. Our spouses watch how we suffer. Our friends watch how we suffer. The people we work with watch how we suffer. And there is almost no greater opportunity to show forth the love and trust and value that you place on God than by the way that you submit to that suffering and endure it. But even when no one sees it in the lonely times, the Lord sees it. The host of heaven sees it, and it is written in his book, and it is to your reward. So I would ask you, what are you waiting for, and how are you waiting for it? You have at least three options. One, you can resent God. Two, you can forsake God. Or three, you can just go all in and worship God. And know that in the mystery of the counsel of his will, somehow this actually all makes sense and somehow it's all good. And that's what Noah does. He worships the Lord, having waited patiently. God finally opened the door. Noah walks out. He builds an altar. And now notice what he worships with, because it's telling. We read in Genesis 8, verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. There are different classifications of animal, clean and unclean, and the clean ones are appropriate for sacrifice. But, but good grief, guys, this is some of the only animals on the whole planet. Like these animals, and then that's it. And notice what he does. He offered burnt offerings on the altar 
with them. In other words, he takes some of the only animals left in the whole of the world and kills them. PETA would not go for that today. That would be a major problem. No, really, I mean, I'm like going, really? Are you sure about this? I mean, you, you think this is a good move? You almost want to run into the story and go, whoa, 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 hang on a second, let's think this through. Not many animals left. Yet God commends him for it. Why does he do this? Because it was the absolute costliest, most precious thing that he could legitimately offer to the Lord his God, whom he loved, whom he trusted, and whom he valued more than anything and more than anyone else. And hey, you know what? Just like his kids never forgot the way that he waited and suffered, his kids never forgot this either. And neither will yours. Neither will the people you work with. Neither will the people that God has entrusted to you to reveal this invisible God to. They will not forget it when they see you bringing whatever the costliest, most precious thing is to you and willingly, joyfully sacrificing it in honor of your invisible God. So bottom line, the world that is that we live in is patterned precisely after the previous world. It begins and ends the same, and as we'll see, it follows the same path. It's a well-worn trail. It inspires the same question. How should we live today in a world that we know today, okay, is going to end in judgment for those who do not believe in Jesus, but in eternal life, in deliverance, in a whole new perfect world for those who do answer, we should live like Noah, that is to say, like people who really do love and trust and value God more than anything and anyone else and show it by what we do and what we say and how we wait and how we suffer and what we sacrifice and all of those kinds of things. And I don't know what that looks like and the particulars for you. I just expect the Spirit to go, and this is what this means. You need to make those connections with the Lord. But that's what we're called to. And that's what in the next world we will for forever be rewarded for. Paul comes with statements on suffering, for example, and says, my goodness, the sufferings of this world, and you want to talk about a guy who suffered, he calls them light and momentary afflictions in comparison with, in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in the end. For having endured them in faith. Oh, they're not light and momentary. (laughs) But in comparison with that, yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious man named Noah and for his family, Lord, who stood faithful to you in a world that did not, who endured ridicule, who sacrificed everything, who invested it all in the means of salvation that you laid out, the picture of Jesus, which is that ark, God who worshiped you, who understood your true value. Lord, teach us to love you, teach us to trust you, teach us to value you, teach us to find in you what this man evidently found in you. So much more than anything that he could find than we could find here. And then let us be crazy people. Let's do some crazy things, at least unless this is all true, in which case it's brilliant. And its genius is still able to help people other than us for the ark 
has a door. The door is Christ, and the flood has not come. The door is wide open. Lord, let us live as people who get people on the ark. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.